Hello and welcome to Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance and defining happiness and success. My name is Graham Alcott, I'm your host for the show and this is Series 2, Episode 9. My guest is Nick Jenkins. Nick is the founder of the business Moonpig, which he sold a few years ago for a lot of money. He's a dragon on the TV show Dragon's Den here in the UK. And uh, these days leads quite an interesting multi-portfolio kind of existence. He's involved in a number of different investments and uh, also does a lot of work around social enterprise, education in Africa and some really interesting stuff. Uh, so this is a really interesting conversation. Uh, Nick very kindly invited me over to his place in Battersea. Uh, so you join me in Nick's front room sat on the sofa with a cup of tea, uh, surrounded by some really beautiful artworks, a big piano in the corner. And uh, let's get straight into it. So here's my conversation with Nick Jenkins. Right, so I'm here with Nick Jenkins. Um, Delighted to have you on Beyond Busy. Welcome to Beyond Busy. Hello. And uh, we're uh, at, uh, how do you describe this place? Is this home? Is this headquarters? You know, what, what... Terminology do you use to describe where well, we're I, I live between between uh, between Wiltshire and London. Actually, mostly when we're in London, mostly with my girlfriend in Notting Hill. But so this is my this is my my London office, cool. I suppose, home office. And these days, you live pretty much a multi-portfolio uh, career with lots of different investments and different different hats that you wear at different times. Yes, lots of different hats. Too many hats. Yeah, <laughs> too many hats. So uh, part of Beyond Busy is, uh, you know, a focus is work-life balance and how mm. do we make those things work. So I'd quite like to just talk to you just about your journey, really, first of all, and then perhaps we'll just sort of touch on some of the themes around uh, your relationship with work-life balance and being busy at different times in that journey. So uh, so let's start at the very beginning. So um, your best-known... Uh, these days, probably for two things, for Dragon's Den and for being the founder of Moonpig. Uh, but before Moonpig, um, so your university uh, time, you're a fellow University of Birmingham alumni, which is uh, mm-hmm. always good to hear. Um, and you studied Russian literature, which when I read that, I was like, why have you studied Russian literature? That just seems like a really interesting choice. It was an interesting choice, but it also only required two Ds and an E to get in. Um, <laughs> Really? Yeah, yeah. It, it, the, the difficulty of the course has got nothing to do with the, the grades required. That's all supply and demand. I think Russian was a very unpopular course when I was doing it. Um, and I spent too much time doing other things at, at school um, and uh, totally flunked my A-levels. And, <laughs> and actually, if you, I figured I could have done French at Manchester. Uh, but I, my, my rationale was that uh, there aren't very many Russian people, there weren't very many Russian people who speak English, whereas there are lots of French people who speak perfect, perfect, right, perfect, okay. perfect yeah. English. So, uh, so it was, uh, it was a more interesting language to study. Yeah. And so you see, so mentioned they're doing lots of other things other than studying during your A level time. Um, yeah, yeah, I did a lot, so of, de- that? a lot of debating, uh, around the debating society at school and, and frankly, a lot of partying. Yeah. Uh, with the debating, do, did you have a sense at the time that that was going to be a useful skill for you in your career? Like, was that? It's one of the most useful skills I think that you can that you can learn is the ability to be able to put together a coherent argument. Yeah, and that applies whether you're trying to sell things externally, internally, whether you're trying to persuade your colleagues of your point of view, um, or you're, whether or not you're having to make a presentation to a thousand people. The ability to be able to stand on your hind legs and put together a coherent argument is, is very important, and yet we ignore it in schools. 
Yeah, and so uh, even at that time, that was. I'm just wondering whether there was a kind of con- conscious or subconscious decision there about kind of almost hedging your bets and learning another skill. Uh, like no, no, actually, I just enjoyed it. So I, I just quite enjoyed. I quite enjoyed the drama of it, yeah. and also the intellectual challenge of having to put together, mm. uh, think through a reasoned argument. And the other great thing it taught me is that you always have to look at things from two sides. In in competition debating, anyway, you know what the subject is. You don't know which side you're going to be on. Yeah. So you have to think of both sides of the argument because you might be asked to speak for or you might be asked to speak against. And it, it taught me that whenever going into an argument, always attack your own argument mm. first yeah. and find the weak spots in your own argument and and then distill it down to something that you feel that you can defend. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit, but there was that story a little while ago about Boris Johnson had written an article for, um, where was it, the Financial Times about yes. Brexit, and so he'd written an article that was pro-Remain and then an article that was pro-Leave, and the idea was to sort of, and maybe that was just spin that they came out with afterwards of like... Uh, um, but that might well have been, but, but he was... He but was the a... idea of that, I think, is something yeah. that uh, has been lost along the way, and a lot of people don't appreciate the value of kind of looking at the argument the other way, and kind of putting yourself in those that, that person's it, shoes it's really important shoes. not to get blinded by your own argument uh, mm. y- you have to look at it from both sides very dispassionately and, and, and only then can you really strengthen your argument and focus in on what where the, where the strong points of the argument are yeah so from there you went to Russia mm. uh, and you worked there for for a number of years eight years eight years um so what was that? So this was like just before the collapse of communism, right? It was the last year of the Soviet Union, yes. The last year, okay. Mm. So you were... So, you I, were... so I had the last year and seven years of the move from communism through to out-and-out capitalism. So, that, so what's quite interesting about what's happening in the UK right now is there's a lot of uncertainty. It kind of feels like we've not had uncertainty in the UK for quite a long period. Like, you know, generally we've kind of understood where we are politically and economically and everything else. So that time in Russia must have been the opposite of that. It must have been a lot of turbulence and a lot of change. And so what, just what was that like living there? When I first arrived, the streets were relatively empty. There were no advertising hoardings anywhere. It was a fairly grey um, uh, but fairly well-ordered place. And within five years, uh, the streets looked a bit like Las Vegas. Everything was lit up with, le- wow. with neon. The streets were full of, <laughs> of, of imported cars, uh, and it was um, it was quite crazy. It was uh, fascinating to see it happen. Uh, but the particularly interesting thing that was fascinating to see, from a historical point of view, was the uh, the revolution, the coup itself, because. Mm. I'd, I'd read about the the Russian Revolution. One assumes that in, during revolutions that the whole country is in in uprising. Actually, that's very rarely true. It's normally an epicenter, and then it spreads mm. out from there. And the epicenter of the of the original Russian nineteen seventeen revolution was indeed actually very small, a very small number of people involved. And the same really within Moscow. And, and my office was a mile from the epicenter of where the coup was going on. Wow. And uh, everything around us was going on perfectly normally. Pizza Hut operating as normal, shops operating as normal, and and then half a mile down the road there were people building barricades and lighting bonfires, and and um, it, it, people will. The natural tendency, I think, is for people to just to carry on as normal until they're absolutely told that they shouldn't. Is it like? Is it because me picturing that and thinking of barricades half a mile down the road just makes me think I'd be terrified, and my natural tendency would probably be to sort of run five miles away or something it, it's amazing you look at that when when you look at it through the eyes of CNN yeah 
they obviously focus in on the most dramatic yeah, bits, and you think it's an absolutely terrifying place to be. Um, what you tend to find is that foreigners in particular tend to roam around uh, sites thinking, it's okay, I'm a foreigner, it's not my war, so I'll just walk around and take some photographs. Mm. Um, and uh, the tendency to spectate is um, shocking, but true. Um, yeah. You just wonder, you see foreigners roaming around taking photographs as if it's as if it's just mildly fascinating. Yeah. Um, um, to, to, to be fair, there wasn't a lot of... Um, there was a very short period of gunfire and battle going on, but, but there were a lot of tanks driving around and, and barricades being, being, being built. Um, but, um, but you do... You, you, it, it's very different seeing it happen in reality compared to seeing it through the news, because I was watching it on the news at the same time. Yeah. And thinking... This is a grossly exaggerated version of what's actually going on on the street. So the reality is kind of slightly more boring and slightly more. Well, it's never quite as exciting yeah. as it is. I mean, much yeah. the same as you know films without the soundtrack and the and the jagged violin yeah. track. Um, not as scary as. Yeah. Reality. Even then, right? Where the news, how you consume news then was very different to how people consume news and the immediacy of news now. I guess. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So you were doing commodities trading there. Yeah. Um, and is that something that you always thought you were going to go into, or was that like no? I didn't think I didn't think about going into that until I was headhunted for it, and it looked interesting. I, but it yeah. was largely by virtue of the fact that I spoke Russian, right? Okay, I, I knew nothing about commodity trading, or right? What I did, but I, it was easier uh, to train a Russian speaker to trade commodities than it was to teach a commodity trader to speak Russian. <laughs> Fair enough. And so, so you did that for a, a few years. Um, I read something about you getting a death threat um, in that job. So how, that is how true. Did that, come about? that is true. Well, well, it, it, I had a client with whom I was storing probably about ten million dollars worth of sugar, and he was starting to, t- to, to take the sugar away without our permission and sell it. Um, so, I uh, I had his assets frozen in Switzerland, which is where he was taking the proceeds, and um, we had a bit of a spat. No. Yeah. And and so from there, like, well, you just get a letter through the post with the. No, no, it was it was nailed to my door. Nailed to your door. Yeah. Right. Well, pinned to the door. Probably nailed is a bit dramatic. <laughs> so what? You just come home from work and there's a. No, no, I'd actually come home at two o'clock in the morning from from a, a dinner party. Wow. And I think the guy had who'd been sent to deliver the message in person couldn't be bothered to wait anymore. So he, <laughs> so he wrote it on a piece of paper and stuck it on my door. So if you'd have stayed in that evening, you probably would have had a more sort of uh, confrontational and uh, scary experience than just... Probably, the yeah, probably. Yeah. I, I, don't think, I don't think anyone would have killed me, but it would have been... It, it definitely would have been a warning. Uh, yeah. Mm. Uh, and then from there, so before starting Moonpig, you came back to the UK uh, and you did an MBA? Yeah. did an MBA at Granville, yeah. And uh, that's something that's just interesting to me. So I'm at this stage where, you know, with my business I'm, business, I'm now taking a break from it and kind of thinking about what I would want to do next and, and you know, do I need to, you know, get some different perspectives and, and so on. And I've always kind of looked at MBAs as being, um, you know, it sort of feels like there's a uh, there's lots of pros and lots of cons for yeah. me to do an MBA. And so did you feel like that really helped you with like you know how to approach something like Moonpig and raising investment for Moonpig and like was was it a, a formative experience in that way it, it was very helpful in um preparing a business plan for starting a business and i think the business plan Moonpig was probably a better business as a result of the year 9 months that i spent doing the mba mm. A lot of people expect miracles from MBA, and there aren't any miracles. What it really does is it teaches you enough to bluff about most subjects within business, <laughs> and it tells you where the books are. 
Uh, I didn't, right, you don't okay. really learn anything in depth, but it teaches you that a lot of things are relatively straightforward. Marketing is pretty straightforward. I'd never done any marketing before. Um, there isn't any marketing. Commodity trading is a commodity. That's mm. um, so. I need to learn about that. I need to learn about a bit more about the legal stuff, about accounting, about finance, and uh, um, it, it was very, it's very helpful if you want to start your own business. Uh, I, I I don't know how useful it is these days. There are so many MBA courses around, and so many people. Merely having an MBA itself is nothing special. Um, so it doesn't anymore. it doesn't open doors in a business sense just to have an MBA but by, just by you having MBA. done it a, a, a just... bright person with an MBA yeah. um, is probably better is, is at least more definable than, than simply a bright person you, you know what they've been through so if I, mm, if I, right, if I if, yeah. so for yeah. example my investment director has an MBA from Granville and, and I, at least I know I know what he's been taught yeah so so it saves a certain amount of the you can short circuit some of the some of the the, uh, the language. Um, Would you look at someone who has uh, made their own money more favourably than MBA? Like, would, how would you rate those things comparatively? Do you know what I mean? If someone's, in, what con- in what context? If, if someone's been if an was entrepreneur... Look, if I was and, looking at employing them. Yeah. Uh, no, or no, or no, if you're no, looking no, at investing them, I, I, mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't employ an ex-entrepreneur. I mean, in the sense that... You, you wouldn't employ you an ex-entrepreneur. Yeah. You do render yourself unemployable. Yeah, I, I, I agree. If, if you're an entrepreneurial yeah, yeah. type, you'll always be an entrepreneurial yeah. type. And entrepreneurs are very, very good number ones, often not very good number twos. Yeah. I'm, I'm a dreadful number two. I would... I would give anybody who was thinking of giving me a job a health warning in the sense that I <clears throat> will often I think one of the reasons why I, I didn't do so well at, at A level is because I would look at the question and then answer another question yeah. um, which is equally interesting but not very helpful if you want to get a decent A level but the uh, so I, I think that kind of disruptive creativity is very helpful in, in a, as a in starting your own business and the independence of mind and, and decisiveness but but actually, what you're looking for in a number two as an employee mm. in your business is someone who's very good at understanding the question and following the instructions. Yeah. Um, so so perhaps the creativity. I'm not saying you know there, there's a, in every company there's a role for creativity. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of business creativity, entrepreneurs are not always the, the best number twos. Hmm. Yeah, I but, agree. That. I was I was with a friend at the weekend who's um you know he's got a business at makes him enough money to live and he enjoys that and he's kind of you know he's stepped out of it wondering what to do next and he's like oh maybe I'll go and work for someone and get a job I've never done that and I said to him yeah I think you're probably unemployable by now you know I I think things once you've tasted the freedom that comes with being self-employed it's very very difficult to get back in the box yeah although he's someone who he enjoys the freedom and also he feels quite trapped by the freedom at the same time so he kind of wants Mm. more structure and he Mm you know doesn't like he doesn't have a great attention span so sometimes he will you know just go off on tangents and rabbit warrens and whatever so he's like oh, I quite like to be put in the box a little bit but mm. I think he'd hate it after day three or something yeah the reality of it is tough I, I after I sold moving I went to work for a charity for a year um, as the CEO and a great, great organisation uh, but I really really didn't enjoy being trying to manage somebody else's vision yeah, uh, because I felt so shackled by it. Uh, when it's my creation, I've started, and I have complete freedom to decide which direction it goes. And I can change my, I can change my mind. I'm flexible, nimble. Um, I can take decisions. I struggled quite a lot with the idea of of having to bring ten other people on the board uh, <clears throat> uh, along with my decisions, and and 
and and so actually in the end I had to say I really don't think I'm probably the best person for the for the job uh, and and I and I wasn't I mean I certainly made made some changes there but I but I wasn't the best person for the job even though on paper you look at it and you think they were looking for someone who had successfully created a business and created value um, and um, uh, and grown something successfully but that doesn't translate into employment yeah. Um- I'd love to know what your thoughts are on the difference between a charity board and a business board and just the dynamics in, in play in those two different things. Uh, strategically, a, a charity is much more difficult to manage in that you, you have to understand, um, in, in a company it's relatively straightforward, you, you look at the results at the end of the year and those results can be compared with any other company. You, yeah. Did we make more money than last year? Um and uh, <clears throat> are we growing? Uh, all these things can be measured, uh, and those are the, the yardsticks by which you are measured. Whereas in a charity, the, the, the critical thing is understanding, uh, did you make a difference? But also not so much, did you... It's a question of where do you stop with that? Because you say, did, did, it, okay, I, I, I might have made a difference in my particular sphere, but was it at the cost? Then you have to ask yourself, was it at the cost of, of other organisations around? So, for example, if you... Uh, if, in the the question of academy schools if you sponsor an academy school and you go and hire all the very best teachers and the and the kids in your school get a fantastic result that's brilliant but not if it's at the expense of because you've sucked all the best teachers in from all the schools around and those schools yeah. have suffered yeah. so so I've always taken the view that you have to look at the you have to look at the in charity you have to look at the overall impact on not just your own organisation but what have you what have you done to the, uh, the whole ecosystem around you and, and understand whether or not there's been any net benefit because ha- if there hasn't been a net benefit to society what are you doing? Um, yeah and, and, I, and there are charities who have very different um, attitudes to whether they take that more holistic view or whether they just focus on their own stuff and trying to and and, know, they, and they do and um, it's very myopic and I find that deeply frustrating you think what is the point but we're, we're all trying to help society so if, if the net impact of what we're doing is is zero, yeah. then we're doing the wrong thing. And, and so, I, so, but I find that that very often people who people who are on charity boards and have come from business don't understand that mm. because in a company it doesn't matter really. You know, for example, if you're ASDA and ASDA is doing better than Tesco, you know, if ASDA gets more business at the expense of Tesco, who cares if you're on the board of ASDA? Yeah, they don't care. Yeah. Um, it doesn't matter uh, because you, you're not responsible for Tesco. Um, uh, you probably cheer, but <laughs> but but that does matter in a charity. If you're if you're yeah. if you're if you're one charity, and overall, I, of course, it, it's not a question of whether you have succeeded at the expense of another charity. The only thing that matters is whether or not the the people you're serving, the beneficiaries, are net net better off. Yeah, absolutely, and, and often with charities, uh, those same competitors in one part of the charity are the collaborators in another part of the charity where you're working in partnership as well. So you kind of want the other charities to do well at the same time as wanting to put the case to your own it, Exactly, but the, 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 and, the thing that really matters is, yeah. is society as a whole better off yeah. as a result of what you've done. Yeah. And very rarely do I see that on uh, on charity boards where people stand back and take that take that view. Mm. You know, Then you have to say, well, if I'm raising money, there's a finite amount of money to be given away. If I'm raising money... Is that at the expense of, of money not going somewhere else? Yeah. Um, so let's get on to Moonpig and um, uh, just talk about your journey with that. So you started in 2000? About 1999-2000. Yeah, I started as soon as I finished my MBA at Cranfield. And I suppose the, you know, the journey of that business was 
you know, really getting into a space that was totally dominated by high street retail and trying to do something online. And it was in that sort of phase yeah. where... At that point, nothing had been done online. Yeah. And that's largely because, uh, although there had been e-greetings, but e-greetings weren't terribly popular because they were being given away and nobody essentially wants to give away a... F- you don't want to give someone a free birthday card because yeah. that goes to show I have thought about you yeah, but not enough. and I've decided yeah. you're not worthy of me spending any money whatsoever on your birthday card yeah. I'm going to give you something that I got for free and, and what's the business model for that as well attached. so people well, there's people an ad- there's, there's an advert attached to it so happy birthday here's someone to advertise that it, you it's, as well. it's, a bit it's like, just a weird thing it's a bit like for your birthday I've given you a coupon that I <laughs> that I cut out of the paper yeah. and I have, have 15% off a pizza yeah. from me well not really from me it's actually from a coupon <laughs> in a magazine so so that never really took off and also they were um, there were quite a lot of viruses so people were very reluctant to, to click on things right so the, the and, and also people like a, they like a physical card in their hand and the technologies of the internet and digital printing came together at the right time for me well I suppose actually you know what happened I I decided to pursue that idea because those two technologies had come together at the right time yeah and um, uh, so that's how it that's how it worked but that was a time that you know a lot of other websites that were trying to take something that was previously all about physical and move it online you know there was the dot com crash where all those businesses were going out of business or yeah. it was kind of a difficult period yeah uh, and it took you a while to uh, get from get get from the point of starting it to it making money it took um, six years six years and is that um, how does that compare to uh, if someone was trying to do that now, or if you were evaluating a business in a similar space mm. now, like is six years about right? Is that about average? Is that did it take longer than three years? Would be better. Yeah, <laughs> right. Of course. Yeah, um, three years was the plan. Yeah. Uh, I'm. It's, some businesses, unfortunately, do take a long time to turn around. Yeah, that six years is quite a long time to turn around. Uh, the important thing is looking is, is whether or not you can see the indications of progress. So we can see that our losses at Moonpick had gone from like a million to three quarters of a million to half a million to 300,000 to break even yeah. to make a profit so so it was all the, the trend was going in the right direction uh, nobody wants to be invested in a business that is constantly losing the same amount of money every year uh, or losing increasing amounts of money every year uh, sure yeah were there times when you were doubting that it was going in the right direction or you, you thought you were going to run out of cash or there are always times and people afterwards when they look back at it after it's been successful will always say gosh well, it was always so obvious that it was such a brilliant idea I think well where were you when I was trying to raise money uh, <laughs> um, uh, so it yeah. wasn't always that obvious actually uh, and there were there, there are definitely times when I thought if somebody had said I will I'll give you back all the money you've invested in this um, and you could just walk away from it as if nothing had ever happened I would have bitten the hand off but yeah. no, nobody made yeah. that offer and then, of course, no one will in those moments. As no, well, no, they, 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 they won't. And when it's, around, it's much the same as all the yeah. investors, all the, the potential investors that I had approached earlier on, all, all wanted to jump on board once we were making money, and I didn't need any money anymore. So, mm. so um, that's one of those things that happens. You, you, the, everyone, everyone's terribly supportive when it's successful, but that's not really when you need the support. Yeah, and so like in those moments, so did you? You put your own money into this, presumably, and yeah, you know, I put quite a lot of my own money into it. You, you mm. were risking a lot in those moments um, yeah no, I, I really I did actually risk everything I went down to zero pretty right much. okay from, from having made quite a lot of money yeah. in Russia uh, and uh, this flat was mortgage free um, uh, and, and I managed to pretty much suck all the equity out of this and spend all the money that I'd made in Russia so, so several years of work and your house is all on the line here yeah 
Um, and yes, if someone had offered you the money you put in, you might have bitten their hand off at a certain point. Were there any, ever times where you said, I'll just cut my losses right now, I'm just going to walk away? Were you, were you ever close to that? No, I don't, I, I don't think I was... I don't think I was close to making that decision um, some of my investors and, and shareholders suggested that maybe it, it was no, it was never going to work really yeah mm. um, but but anyway I proved them wrong in the end yeah um, did you ever have moments in those times where you fantasised about what you'd do if you weren't doing that oh, undoubtedly uh, <laughs> and what, yeah. what would that have looked but, like because it does you do feel quite con- quite trapped by yeah. business you start a business and, and people it, it's easy for me to talk about the freedom of being of being an entrepreneur but until your business has actually made money um, you are more shackled than an employee for sure for sure yeah uh, in that um, yeah you, you, you can't just you can't just drop it and say I've had enough yeah uh, because you've got employees and you've got all your money tied up in it and and uh, and you've got and all, all, money all sorts of obligations, yeah. and it's your business, yeah. and you're legally liable for it. So, um, so you can't just throw it, throw, uh, throw, it, throw it all away. So, um, so there is that sense of being bound to it. Yeah, I, it's like it can sometimes be lonely as well when you're on that journey. I think. And well, it's, it's lonely. It's lonely with your employees if you're a sole founder because yeah. you, you can't. When your employees ask you what's troubling you, you can't say I'm. I'm troubled about being able to pay your salary at the end of the month. That doesn't, it's not yeah. good for morale. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so then you got into a position of it reaching profit. Yeah. Um, and then it started to do really well and the growth was, was pretty phenomenal for a while. Yeah. Um, and so you then took the decision to sell. Was that was your plan always to sell or had that, did you just get to a stage well, where... I... I think my plan in the beginning had been to that, that I thought Moonpig would end up being. I thought I thought I could set it up and probably sell it for a four million, and then that would be a, a lump of money that I could then use to start another business. Mm. But in in the end, um, it sold for I think altogether made one hundred and fifty out of it. Um, yeah, and um, uh, it, it wasn't it wasn't the, the investors were putting any pressure on to sell it because we were paying quite a lot of dividends at the time. Um, and they're all private investors rather than institutional investors, so there's no time pressure. But I, I, I personally felt that I had uh, ridden the wave as far as I wanted to to, to, to ride it. Uh, the business was settling down, it, the growth rates were slowing down a little bit, and it, it had got to that ma- rather more mature stage where it required someone who was who was absolutely on top of the detail all the time. Mm. And there, I re- recognised that we wouldn't have the same level of excitement as we had when you when you go from losing money to to breaking even to making a profit it's very exciting when you go from making a profit to making a big profit that's incredibly exciting when you have the biggest day you've ever had that's very exciting um, but when at the end of the year sales have increased by 10% or 15% it's good but it's not as exciting as it was mm. and 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 also i'd hired a really good team and i felt that i wasn't Making as much of a difference as possible, and I, in a sense, I needed to shake. Uh, every once in a while, I like to throw throw all the balls in the air, and and uh, in uh, terms of your own life and yeah, what you're doing, yeah, yeah, and and just and 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 start again. So, I, having started again from Russia, I came back from Russia, having had quite a good career there, and stopped that with no plan for the future. Um, I then had to create another another life, which was Moonpig, and then. It was quite a challenge, in a sense, to to sell that and think. Right, I have no idea what I'm going to do next. Yeah, but let's just see where it goes. 
Yeah. Um, did you... Um, so so you had a couple of years where you're paying really good dividends, you're still working in the business, it's still mm. growing, um, and then you reach that point where um, you're going to sell it. So presumably around that time, your own financial situation has changed. Like you've got, you know, you, like you, you're getting the money back that you'd... Yes, yeah. So, so sense, before I put, sold the business, the we'd, line, we'd already, I think, we'd already made about 20 million pounds in dividends yeah. so paid out so that, so that was so there was all yeah so financially my life had changed anyway by that point point. and so did your finance did your attitude to money and how you see money did that change around that time or did, did I, you I notice think, I, th- I think so but it probably changed the most after I sold the business because I still had although I paid a lot of dividends at I still had most of my assets tied up in the company and that's a precarious position right. to be in yeah. uh, so once I'd sold the company then suddenly it's it's in a big lump and it's safe yeah. and do we have to evacuate from here or is that no 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 I think it's just a it's a fire alarm <laughs> okay, cool. uh, test um, should we so, just wait, wait until that uh, so wait 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 so, so that shift of selling the company means that your your money is no longer tied up in the business it's no longer tied up in one you, place yeah. you can spread it around a bit you can yeah. diversify it and, and therefore I, I know that that's secure that I, I will always have a roof over my head. Yeah, I'll be able to pay the bills, and um, uh, and most importantly, there's a big difference. Is that the point at which um, you get financially liberated because you don't have to worry about <clears throat> the cost of a taxi or paying for a restaurant, and uh, but you still have to work, uh, but you're not worried about about paying the bills. And then there's a point at which actually you don't have to work anymore. Yeah, and that is an interesting point in in your life because then. You still have to. We all still need need to be busy. We still need to be engaged with the world. So then you think, well, what do I do that's going to maintain my interest? And there has to be something more to it than money. I mean, the idea of just making more money um, for the sake of it um, is, is pointless if you're not spending the money you've already got. Mm. Uh, so, so you have to find more purpose, and that's a, that's a challenge in itself. Which is one of the reasons why when I sold Moonpig, I went to I went I was offered a. I didn't seek it actually, but I was headhunted for a role running a charity, and I'd already set up my own foundation by that point, and it was a world I'm quite fascinated by, and I got the opportunity to run a charity uh, as a CEO, and I thought well, I will take it um, mm. because that might well be the the new career that I take. And as it ha- happens, I probably spend at least a third of my time on non-profit activities, yeah. um, either charities I'm tr- a trustee of uh, or my own charity. Um, and uh, and it's an area that that I find intellectually quite fascinating and also very rewarding in the sense that these are very difficult, complex problems. But it, if mm. if you feel you can make a difference to them, it's it's more rewarding than simply solving a problem in order to make more money. Yeah, uh, I want to rewind really slightly there and talk about um, that thing. I've made my money, but I still have to be busy. Uh, and yes. you know, so that sense of finding purpose. And we we have to, to we have to be useful. Yeah, and so where do you think that comes from within you? Well, I think I think I think we all all human beings need a sense of have a sense of uh, need a sense of purpose, mm. and it's it's rewarding to feel as though you're you're useful. So I so I find now that I do quite a lot of mentoring of small businesses. Um, uh, on a fairly informal basis, but uh, and actually, I find that if I if I spend half an hour of my time with somebody, and it's given them a really useful insight, it makes me happy. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, I don't want to spend my time in. Um, there, there, there are lots of networking events and things like that where, or conferences where you sit and you think, why, why am I here? I'm not learning anything. I'm not doing anything. I'm not participating in this. This is, uh, this is just a waste of time. I don't want to waste my time anymore. The time, my time yeah. is quite valuable and I want to make yeah. sure. So when, when, you know, when people, when people call me and say, I'd love to come and talk to you about, about my business, I will say, well, first of all, I want a phone call to see if there's, if there really is genuinely anything that I can actually add because, mm. you know, I don't know everything about everything. And, uh, and I've got a few areas where I feel I can make a difference. And if I feel I can, I'll help. But if, if I feel they just they just want to have a meeting with someone, there's an element sometimes of people wanting to meet people who've been successful yeah. just because they want to touch the cloak and feel it, feel the, the magic rub off. Well, it doesn't actually work that way <laughs> at all. And uh, um, yeah. just doesn't. So, um, um, so the, 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 there are two things, I think. One is the intellectual challenge. I think it's, it's quite exciting and exhilarating when your brain is working at full speed solving a problem um, I'm a naturally very curious person so I'm, I'm mm. always curious about if there's a problem rather than just write the check mm. and help out I, I want to understand why the problem exists in the first place um, and then also then look at the way it's being solved and work is there, even, is, is there a better way who's doing, who's doing it better so, um, so there's, there's an intellectual curiosity there um, that needs to be satisfied and I, you know, that's, that's good fun in itself it's engaging, yeah. um, and then there's this innate need to be to be useful, I suppose. Yeah, and you strike me as somebody from what I've read, and just hearing you talk about that there, uh, it strikes me that you you feel quite fulfilled. Mm. So it strikes me that you know that's yeah. something that you think about and is important to you. Mm. Do you feel like you're more fulfilled now than you were on that journey with Moonpig or do you feel like you know they're different they're too different to I'm very, uh, they're, they're different things uh, during the the journey with Moonpig I I, I needed Moonpig to, to work um, and that was probably my driving force is that I needed this thing to work I, yeah. I, after all I'd I'd taken investment from friends and colleagues and people I knew and I needed to get them a result for them probably more than even for myself you can mm, shrug off yeah. your own misfortune very easily yeah. but you can't shrug off the misfortune of others and uh, when I set up Moonpig I was uh, not married didn't have any dependents so my view was that if I ended up with nothing at the end of it and I'd had a good time that was fine mm. uh, but what I didn't want to do was to take an investment from people and, and waste their money so I felt that responsibility quite heavily yeah um, let's change tack a little bit and just talk about Dragon's Den yeah. so you did two series two series yeah Dragon's Den um, I so I've watched Dragon's Den for many years um, and I think it's the most it feels to me like the most informative show about business I uh, think so yeah. it's most realistic you think about you know I mean uh, The Apprentice feels a bit more like a reality TV show these days to be honest uh, well, well the, the um, problem with The Apprentice is it is it, it's very it, it's very artificial in the sense that he'll say well here's a Here's a kilogram of cheese. Whoever can make the most money out of this piece of cheese by five pm yeah. wins, <laughs> and that isn't really how business works. Whereas in in Dragon's Den, you have real people who've invested years, yeah. in, in many cases, setting up their business. They care passionately about it. It's their whole life, and we're investing money, which is our money, and not only that, making a significant commitment of time. And it's the time that is the greater commitment than the money because most yeah, of the investments, most, yeah. most of the investments that I make outside of the den, I, I I write a check, I get some shares. If I feel like adding something, I will add something. But if mm. I feel like walking off and paying it no attention, then then I'm equally entitled to do that. Uh, whereas with Dragon's Den, we have made this commitment to to help them on their journey, 
and uh, I take that quite quite seriously. So it is. I look at it and think, is this business going to suck up more time than it's worth? And very often it's the small investments that are the problem because you think, well, it's a tiny investment of twenty thousand pounds or something, um, and and you've got a small stake in a, in a business which may end up being very remaining very small. Mm. You know, of of the way and that you I can maybe spend. have someone who needs more time yeah. to be molded and you know for the business to be shaped. And there's a limited number of hours in the in the, in the day to, yeah. to spend on on projects. So if I take on a, a project with Dragon's Den, it means that's one less project that I can take on outside the den. Mm. And and what I have realised is that there are only so many plates that you can have spinning in the air at any one time. And uh, my aim is always to try to keep that balanced and to keep. Um, to keep the number of projects at the number where it's interesting but manageable, and where I'm making, where I'm where I'm enjoying making a, a real difference, as yeah. opposed to merely running from plate to plate, trying to spin it as quickly as possible and move on to the next one. Do you measure the plates? Do you have a sort of magic number in your head of okay, there's four businesses here that I want to be really intensely involved with, and another five that I want to be medium and like? Do you think about it in that? I, I suppose so. I mean, I, I'd say that at out of a portfolio, and I probably have a portfolio of 20 businesses now, there will generally be three or four of them that are in need of attention. Hmm. Uh, but with the Dragon's Den investments, generally speaking, that's, you know, that, so I did five in the first series and five in the second series. And that's quite a... In that first year, it's quite a big commitment. Yeah. It's one of the, the main yeah. reasons, really, for not doing it for a third season. I, I really love the programme and I loved filming it. It's great fun making it. Really exciting. Um, probably the easiest TV as a as a as a I don't know what I would call myself not a presenter but anyway as a, as a, as a participant probably the easiest TV to make because we just sit there and do what we do in a yeah. day job there's no script I don't have to prepare for it um, um, it's just it's exciting and enjoyable there are no retakes it's all very natural I guess you just um, have to make sure that you're, you've slept well and you're on your game for that day because you, you're you've got to be on the game and that's the, and that's the, to ask a question and, and that's the bit that's exciting yeah. is, that, is that someone walks in through the day and you've got no idea who they are um, or what their business is yeah. and you have to ask them and you might have no, no idea about their sector but you have to ask them all the right questions to work out whether or not this is a viable business and uh, and that's, that's that's challenging it's good fun um, the the hard work though starts afterwards when you have to when you have to work with them but the questions you're asking yourself is uh, am I going to enjoy working with this person uh, is this going to be a real do they have the skills? I, I only really want to invest my time in people who are going to learn from that and yeah. then grow with it. I, I don't want to be hand-holding someone two or three years' time. Um, yeah, what I liked about your style on Dragon's Den uh, was there was one uh, on the one I just watched last week where the guy comes in and he says, I need investment and I'm going to, I've got, I want to buy all these warehouses and vans and oh, yes, build yes. this thing up. And you just said, well, if you just hire the vans and don't put all your stock in a warehouse and whatever then you don't need any money so I'm out sort of you know so you so you almost gave him this kind of it feels like your style on there was often to provide as much advice as you would probe and to be quite generous in that way was that a conscious thing or what is it I actually I don't really it's not so much conscious that's what I do normally if someone comes, yeah. if someone comes yeah. to me and they want to raise money and I think they can do it without raising money. I'll tell them how to do it without raising money yeah. because if, as a business, you can get by without raising money, then you then then don't. Mm. Um, but did you have a sense of I want to go in there and kind of and try to be very positive in the way that I interact with the people coming in? 
Well, I generally try and do that anyway. So that's, yeah. um, you know, I, I've been in the same situation asking, with my handout yeah. asking for money. And uh, and I got some very useful advice when I was doing it. Um, there's, there's, there's nothing really to be gained just by... By by mocking them. Um, well, I think sometimes it makes good TV, and I think it, maybe it, some it, of the previous series it sort of felt like it was going more down a, you know, a sort of yes. I, well, I was going to use the word nasty. That's maybe the wrong. Maybe that's too strong. But it felt like it was going down a. Let's make this a kind of. Let's make the tension in the TV about seeing this experience of pitching as being a really brutal, you know, kind of experience. And part of what makes that happen is that the dragons have to be really tearing people apart. And you kind of struck me as someone who was doing the opposite to that or doing it in a different well, way. Well, I think you can still be... You can still force people to to question their own business model without having to be brutal about it. I mean, the, mm. the, the brutal bit is, 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 is realising that your own business model is uh, awful. <laughs> and actually, then you yeah. beat yourself up about it. But there's no, there's no you know, I, I, I generally don't have to beat anybody up about it because you just have to point out what's wrong with the, with, with the business idea, and um, uh, <laughs> that's enough. Uh, it, it's it's a it's a very the the educational part of of Dragon's Den is about um, the audience being able to look at it and do their own analysis as the same thing is going on, yeah. thinking what question is the question yeah, I would which ask. Which I, I love um, yeah. and uh, thinking, would I invest in this? Would I yeah. invest in this? I mean, yeah. I think an interactive version of that would be uh, would be great. You know, people with the audience voting yes, no, yes, no <laughs> at the same time as at the same time as the uh, as, as the the dragons. The difficult thing is, of course, we have an hour, an hour and a half with them, whereas on TV that's condensed down to about ten minutes. So, oh, so for each pitch, yeah, yeah. So, there's, wow, there's, so, so okay. it gets condensed down to the best ten minutes. So we wow. can ask all sorts of really interesting probing questions that don't get aired because they're a bit dull. Yeah, because um, that was that was something that has always intrigued me about it. Um, from that point of view, think you know, and obviously some of, some of the investments outside of the den they fail due diligence and they don't happen and yeah. and all the rest of it. And I often thought, you know, it because it, it, it felt to me like okay, so the, these guys are kind of flying by the seat of their pants a little bit by the fact that it is only ten minutes or fifteen minutes. But so you do have a full oh yeah, you got a full hour. hour but right, we, okay. we have as long as, as as long as it takes. Yeah, sometimes okay. it goes on for two and a half hours. Well, wow, really? I'm not going to hand over a check if I can't uh, ask all the right questions. So, no, I thought so, maybe people are sort of relying on the fact that if it, you know, if you get to outside of the den and then you do due diligence and other stuff comes up that you don't have time for there, that's when you sort of pull yeah, out. My, kind of my, my approach that, to it okay. is generally that if I haven't, if I haven't asked the questions in the den, um, I will. If I've asked a question in the den and, they, and they've answered it incorrectly, mm. then then that's a reason to say no. Um, so if I say to somebody, "Do you have any competitors in the UK?" and they say we have no competitors, yeah. and then I go on Google um, as soon as the pitch is over and I find out they've got ten competitors, um, then I'm not going to go through with it. Yeah. Um, if it, but but if I didn't ask the question. Then really, I, I see that as sort of my responsibility. So you feel like that's your word is your bond at that point, and well, it's not my word and my bond. I feel, I think, but the, the the general principle for me, anyway, my own guide was mm. that it was my responsibility to ask the questions in the den, and um, if I didn't, uh, if they didn't say anything misleading, um, then I would att- try to go through it. Sometimes they don't want to go through with it, yeah, because sometimes yeah. they're just in it for the publicity. Um, yeah, which, which is fine. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I didn't mind that because actually there was a limit. There's some great businesses in there, but I can't invest in them all. I'm going to get. I yeah, can probably sure. do five, five a year, and five yeah. a year was too many mm. um, to take on. So um, yeah, it's felt like people going in there have got more savvy over the years, and now it's more about either them getting publicity mm. to drive traffic to a website, or mm. it's about 
they're, they're actually going in more to get you know the doors open into the Sainsbury's to get the product on the shelf yeah. or whatever you know it's more about that exactly, the value exactly. that someone brings in that and, way rather than the money very often they get a lot of phone calls the, the next day or they get emails the next day from trade inquiries and, mm. and that's that's uh, that's enough of them um Fair dues. I, th- I think the most important thing about the program is that it's an opportunity for for us all to look at the thing and think: is this a good business model? Is it not? And yeah. for that, you need a mixture of really obviously good ideas, bad ideas, just to make it easier for the audience to be able to distinguish between the two. If you only had um, five ideas, all of which were brilliant people with brilliant ideas, yeah. be a bit samey after a while. It'd be very dull. Do you know my? I have two. There's two things that always frustrate. Actually, there's three things. I love it, but there's mm. three things that frustrate me. One is the opening credits, which just go on for far too long. So I always on iPlay skip to about one minute forty or something. Yeah. Uh, uh, the second thing is they. All, I, I agree with you. You want a range of businesses, but why always put the one that gets investment at the end of the edit? Do you know what I mean? Like it feels like there might be one or two that get investment, but the last one at the end is always the happy yeah, ending. Yeah, yeah. And I just think, oh, it's so annoying because in the last five minutes of the show, I know that one's going to get investment. <laughs> Generally, right? That is a good so bit of feedback. It's just like, oh, oh give, they, give me jeopardy. They, you know? <laughs> like, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to speak to that. I'm going to speak to and say, why do you do that? Please feed that back. Why, yeah. why do you do that? Because you make it incre- you do you make it yeah. incredibly predictable. And also, it does have that slight subconscious thing of um, there's always a happy ending in business, which is obviously you know, be which is which is clearly a, clearly not true. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and the third thing I don't like is. Evan Davis's puns. Can you feed that back? Like they'll be like, you know what I mean? Like there'll be like a window cleaning business or something, and he'll go, "Do they see a window of opportunity?" And like, yeah, and then they'll yeah. come up. Has, has the vision cleared? For oh, it's just <laughs> don't do that, Evan. You know? Yeah, he's, he's he's very good though. He does he does manage to turn. If you look at the whole of a pitch, can we get a, a CD yeah. with, uh, or DVD as it's called nowadays? This bit, but with the whole of the pitch from start to finish. From taken from one camera angle, okay, and um, without any obviously any background music or anything or any commentary from Evan, it's really dull. So you get that afterwards. So afterwards, we get that as, as our legal copy of, of just for legal purposes. Oh, we get right, a copy okay. of the, of the pitch. Right. So, so like if I can, if, if I if I do decide to say no, I can say to the entrepreneur, look. It, at minute 17 you said that you had absolutely no competitors whatsoever in the mm, UK you're the only person right. doing this yeah. you haven't you've got 10 competitors I just can't invest in that so it gives you the, it gives you the uh, whereas that might that bit might not appear on the TV show yeah so anyway so we look at this this hour long thing and you look at it and it's really really dull what's <laughs> exciting is the way that the BBC edit it yeah. and then, then Evan Davis comes in yeah. and then there's a bit of music and there's a bit of tension and, and that's, that's, that's what makes it into into um, good viewing and I think he's he's good you know when you hear him on radio and everything else and, and even on Dragon's Den at putting complex ideas yeah. across in I think a very simple way he, and very I think accessibly he's, he and is he's good like brilliant that. actually um, and he writes it all no himself no need to do the puns you know I quite like his puns but then Peter <laughs> likes puns as well Peter and his puns um, were you a fan of Dragon's Den before you were on it did you watch it I'd, I'd had you know on and off over the years I loved it when it first came out I was addicted yeah. to it and then I and then I don't know got busy and actually maybe maybe it was trying to raise money for my own business that made it suddenly <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what this is too real this is too that. real yeah. uh, so I went through a period of watching it then not watching it and uh, and then I got asked to do it so. and so yeah. um, you obviously knew when you were asked to do it okay this is going to raise my profile personally um, so was that was that an important thing to you, or no? Not really. No. I what happened was I got approached, and sometimes 
the doors open and and you just want to walk through them mm. um and if if I, I'd been asked to do it, I screen tested for it, and they said, "Would you like to do it?" And I thought, well, if I say no, I'll never find out what it's like. Yeah. Um, right. And if I say yes, and I and I stop after a year, then no one will remember who I was anyway. So um, uh, it, it has been no, uh, it's had no impact on my on my private life. I mean, occasionally someone will. The annoying thing is when someone comes up and says, "I know you, don't I?" <laughs> and and but they don't really know who I am. Right. They just vaguely recognise my face, and that's the really annoying thing because because if I say, "Oh yes, I think you see me on Dragon's Den," they'll <laughs> they'll probably say, "No, it's not that. It's somewhere else." Um, so I so when when people say, "I recognise you, don't it, don't I?" and I'll, I I just would generally say, probably. Because I live in the Wiley Valley in Wiltshire, <laughs> <laughs> and and of course, if they do say yes, because I I live in Hatesbury, that's right. right. <laughs> I've seen you at our local budgeons, then then then, then it's fine. But um, but I, I don't mind if people come up and they say I watch the show; it's really amusing. Blah 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 blah. I'm very happy to chat about it. Um, what's more frustrating is when people vaguely recognise you but don't actually know who you are. Yeah. Um, has it changed how people perceive you in your business life in terms of maybe other investments that are not well I mean the, the, the one of my reservations life. about it to some extent is that um, uh, is whether or not it ends up almost trivialising what you've done in your business life you know, because mm. I spent 11 years building Moonbeak which is a very serious business yeah. and then I spent 6 weeks filming Dragon's Den and then you get better name for the 6 weeks of filming Dragon's Den yeah. than you do for the 11 years of hard work building the business that made that possible so um, so the, my, my one reservation about it was that um, I, I'm, uh, does it end up slightly trivialising it but um, but no I, I, you know, I, think, I, think most, I think most people understand the importance of Dragon's Den in the whole sort of entrepreneurial ecosystem that there are children who watch this and think as a result of watching it that they want to start their own business and, and I think as part of the, the general Entrepreneurial education um, in, in the UK, yeah. I think, it has quite an important role. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that certainly. And uh, I had a couple of people on the podcast, um, Ben and Jody Cook, a little while ago, who've mm. been. Uh, I should, I should get you in touch with um, their book because you'd be really interested. So they, what they've done is created some entrepreneurial characters and made storybooks for primary schools, and it mm. got funded recently by Laws TSV. So it's now in every school. Mm. Mm. Um, but mm. and one of, one of them is called Cody the Coder. So mm. it's like. You know, just really, really kind of ordinary business. This guy Cody's just you know doing a few things with his mates. So it's kind of adding that yeah, extra element yeah. of like business being very practical and yeah. being a kind of you know practical thing that anyone can do if you yeah. set up a little business and you know sell to your friends and mm. that kind of thing. Really, yeah, like yeah. really interesting. Um, just in the last um, few minutes, so just in terms of your current work, um, what what are you most excited about? Uh, it feels like you're doing a lot of stuff where. Your focus is on making a difference, whether that's to entrepreneurs and businesses or to social ventures and education and stuff. Like, what, what's exciting you most? What I've done now is I've brought together those two threads, uh, and my biggest stake at the moment in a business is in a business called Mwabu, mm. which is a commercial business, but it's owned partly by my charity, partly by uh, another. There are two other charities involved in, in it that invest in it, and it's a primary school education system in Africa. Um, and uh, that so so it's combining my interest in technology and educational technology in particular with my interest in education in the developing world, 
So um, that that I think will be. I, what I wanted to do, I wanted to be in a position where when I was looking at new businesses, I'd, I'd focus in so that every time I'm learning something and adding adding something to my layer of knowledge, as opposed to the problem with the Dragon's Den, is investing in a whole slew of different businesses, and I learn a little bit about the soup business, mm. the pea soup business, then yeah. I learn a bit about the marshmallow business, a bit about the pork scratching business, and then something about mobile telephony, and, <laughs> and, and none of them are adding anything to, yeah. to, to it. So... Um, so I want to be a little bit more efficient about getting becoming more of an expert in another thing and having um, transferable yeah. knowledge from yeah. So so I became yeah. good at internet retail and understanding how to market to to, to customers on the on the internet. So that's one thing I understand. Um, but uh, but but I, you know, I, 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 don't, I I don't want to spend the rest of my career doing personalised gifts on online. I'm it, done it. Mm. Um, do you? Do you sort of have plans to do, you know, one one startup again that will have the same kind of legacy or uh, sort of, you know, fame as Moonpig, or is it is that not a, a focus for you? I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know. That portfolio and I don't know. I quite like the portfolio at the moment because the yeah. portfolio gives me the opportunity to drop in, drop out, and do lots of other things. And and also, I think my motivation has changed. You know, when I I needed Moonpig to work. And I was happy to put the time in and make that massive commitment to, to do that. Um, whereas whereas now I, I want to be able to have the time to go off and do other things and, and get balance in my life. Mm. Um, so it, it's better for me to do that by having stakes in, in, in maybe four or five big stakes in four or five things where I can keep an eye on it, I can add something, um, I can make a difference to those businesses. Uh, but at the same time, I can drop in, I can drop out. Yeah. And also, I don't want to throw put all my eggs in one basket again. Yeah. Um, you needed Moonpig to work, and that has a sort of, you know, very strong, obvious element of pressure hmm. there. Do you feel under pressure now in the portfolio life that you have? I think the constant balance that I have is in balancing the amount of things I get involved in. Um, I, um, I try to manage... Try to keep my life quite simple, so I, I don't have a PA. I manage everything myself. Um, I try to limit communication uh, because if you open up lots of channels of communi- communication, you have to answer them. Mm. Um, I, you talked about the the zero inbox. Every, every night, I try and get my inbox down to zero. Yeah. Don't always succeed, but by the end of the week, at some point in the week, my inbox goes down to zero. Um, I don't like having massive inbox um, um, over my head. I like things to be ordered. And um, when my life is all in order, I know exactly where things are then I'm relaxed. Um, I found over time that if you're a naturally busy person, it doesn't matter if you give up all of your work, your life will end up being busy in other directions. So whenever you stop doing something, you create a vacuum for something to do something else. And once you've accepted that busy people are always busy, uh, then then it's just a question of maintaining an acceptable level of of business. And that's where I find things engaging and interesting uh, but not a not a burden. I don't like I don't like being panicked because I don't have a single free day between now and and and, and next. I, I don't plan a hi- ahead very far. I won't take a commitment to speak at an event in four months' time because I don't know what I might want to do in four months' time. Really? Okay. How far ahead do you plan? This is interesting. two months. Really? Okay. So nothing. So, and I plan that, holidays. I plan yeah, holidays. Yeah. Okay. Months. But so if someone said, okay, there's this big thing coming up in four or five months' time, you might want to be part of it or invest in it, or whatever. Do you just say, ask me nearer the time, or you just just ask me nearer, nearer the time? And yeah, if, that, really. if that isn't good enough, I won't do it. Yeah. Um, and is that so that you have 
more of a sense of control because you do you get more of a sense of control over that because actually what you're horizon is that you need to view is more limited well than it's a, if i have, if i've agreed to do a, to do a talk somewhere which i quite yeah. enjoy doing talks but essentially i mean i don't charge for them and i don't i do them largely as favors for people um and or if i think it's it's a i i would talk about philanthropy if i thought that was a useful um, um if it was a useful platform um i will occasionally do the talk a talk about me setting up Moonpig and, and so on if I think it's an interesting audience or it's a school or a university or something but uh, what I don't want to do is to commit to speaking to 100 people um, and on a day in February and then I get at the last minute get invited on a fantastic skiing trip and I can't go because right, I've already okay. committed yeah. I was like, once I say yes to something I say yes I went back yeah. out of it yeah. uh, so the answer is not to say yes to a lot of things so I, so I spend a lot of my time I, I don't actively seek opportunities. I spend most of my time batting them off. Mm. Um, and um, and the, 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 well, I've learned a number of things. Don't have too many channels for communications. I don't tweet. I don't have... I, I'm, I'm very difficult to find. Um, I'm yeah. not entirely sure how you slip through the, through, slip through the net. But, um, <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and, and then the other thing is be decisive about saying yes or no to things. So yeah. if, if something comes into my inbox and they'll say, do you want to speak? Could you want to, do you want to talk about this? Um, you just have to be quite decisive and say if it's an investment opportunity I'm, I'm going to save their time and my time just by saying I, I, I'm not looking for new opportunities this year thanks very much yeah. I cannot help yeah. D- don't, don't open the door to a discussion about it um, uh, don't say well maybe not right now mm. just say no yeah. clearly and then the person moves on um, what doesn't help anybody is having a meeting about it out of politeness wasting an hour of their time an hour of your time and then you say no and probably several hours of their time in sort of you know prepping and researching exactly you exactly, exactly. Stuff, trying, yeah. so if you're going to say say no yeah. say yes or no early yeah and move on um so so that's how i taking decisions quickly is how i try to manage manage time mm. um, i was polite about it but uh, you know. yeah and just on the being difficult to find things so um I was I put your name into Google um, a couple of days ago when I was hmm. you know just researching this, expecting to find you know what normally comes up is you know Wikipedia, Twitter which I didn't find, hmm. and then usually you'll find you know that person's personal website nickjenkins.com hmm. and yours came up just with a DNS error like so you're using that domain name for email, yeah but there wasn't yeah. a website there yeah so is that like you just decided not to have one I mean is that like is that part of the yeah, keeping life not, simple I decided not no to have reason one to... I mean I, I didn't um, I didn't need one but that's quite unusual everyone feels that they have a need to do that in 2017 well, for, for, one, for one thing I have to for one thing to have a website is then to have to decide how you want to describe yourself yeah, to the world yeah. I don't know when people say what do you do I, I don't know I, 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 do, <laughs> I do a variety of things that happen to interest me at the time but I don't want yeah. to have to continually manicure this vision of what I do um, and maintain a website it's just additional it's just additional pressure on what for it's not like I'm looking for new opportunities there are so many opportunities yeah. that, I, that I that that come to me anyway that, I, that I'm just filtering those rather than actively seeking mm. seeking more and if you open a website and you put in contact me people will contact you yeah and 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 I'm quite polite so if, if people do manage to get hold of me um, uh, which occasionally they they, they will um, <laughs> you know I mean I, as it is I probably get 50 60 emails a day yeah. uh, that I need to that I need to deal with um, of which probably four or five are 
uh, people who've managed to get hold of my email, email, email address from somewhere. Maybe four or five, three or four. Maybe yeah. Um, so that would be exponentially more if you had LinkedIn and Twitter. And that would be massive. It yeah. would be absolutely yeah. massive. And and I would either have to pay someone to deal with that. And I don't like I don't like paying for a PA to try to deal with that because sometimes I can see. I, I can read something quite quickly and, and think it, whether this is something that I'm remotely interested in or not. I can assess that very quickly and I can deal with it very quickly. Um, trying to train a PA to, to do that would be a nightmare. Mm. Um, and um, uh, and also, it's just another it's another shackle. It's another bit of overhead. Um, and someone else to think about and check in with, and yeah, like yeah, it's, yeah. it's overhead in many ways. Yeah, well, but, you know, but if you open yourself up on Twitter, um, yeah, people will ask you questions on Twitter, like, "Can I come and see you about my business idea?" Well, either you completely ignore them, then you know, don't open a channel mm. of communication, then ignore people. I mean, obviously, I imagine Trump probably doesn't answer personally <laughs> to every every email that he gets because some of them are probably quite rude. But um, um, yeah, you'd have a job. But we, just we, even, but we, oh, yeah. we have too many channels of communication. So WhatsApp and mm. email and Twitter and uh, all these other different things that that, that and it, and it's just things being shot at you from every direction. They just minimise it. Yeah. Well, I think that's um, uh, some nice productivity advice to mm. leave it with at the end. And also, I'll just say, I'm very glad that I slipped through your net and managed yeah, to, yeah. <laughs> uh, to make contact. And, and thank you just for being so so generous with your time. That's um, a pleasure. Uh, it's been great having you on Beyond Busy. Um, so uh, what I often do at the end here is say, how can people find out more about you? But there's you, well, you sure. don't have the website. There's plenty out there. Um, there are plenty of articles out there. So just Google me is the advice there. Uh, yeah. Cool. Uh, what's your plans for the rest of the day? Where are you off from here? I am. What am I doing? I've got, I've got my meeting at twelve. Uh, where am I going? Oh, that's right. Yes, I'm. I'm going to see some. Going to have a meeting with um, uh, a small, uh, with quintessentially um, ventures um, that I'm. I'm one of the founding entrepreneurs in, um, which is a, a sort of angel investment. It's an angel investment group. Cool. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, thanks again for your time, Nick. That's a pleasure. Good Thank to meet So thanks again to Nick for being on the show. I uh, really enjoyed that one. And I think some of the stuff towards the end there around uh, him making himself less available uh, was just really interesting, very inspiring and uh, got me thinking about a lot of stuff as well. Uh, so thanks again to Nick. Uh, thanks also to Mark Stedman, who's my producer on the show. You can find out more about what he does uh, in the show notes. Uh, his company is Bloomsbury Digital. And uh, if you want to find out more, so the website is getbeyondbusy.com, getbeyondbusy.com. And you can find out more about what I do at thinkproductive.com. And the book, as if you don't know by now, is How to Be a Productivity Ninja. So we'll be back in two weeks' time with another episode of Beyond Busy. And until then, take care. Speak to you soon. Goodbye for now. Thank you.